I know, every time I walk out here, everybody gets quiet. But I mean, it's good to see you. Uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, this is a special day, and I want to start off with a little bit of a, uh, just sort of a family talk here about why this is a special day. It's not just because Thanksgiving, Christmas is starting, which is a great time of year, and it's not just that in a week and a half I get to have some turkey and dressing, which is the heavenly food. I'm pretty sure it's going to be up there. Um, but uh, it's because of what happens at Eastridge this time of year. This season is called overflow around here. And then it overflows. And if you, if you haven't been here, if you're new enough that you haven't been here for a Thanksgiving, Christmas, I am about to tell you uh, a treat, okay? This is a great time of year to be here. Those of you who've been here, hopefully you've participated. If you haven't, maybe this is the year uh, that you're uh, going to get in on this. Uh, we call overflow uh, this because it's based on a, a biblical story. Uh, in, in the writings of the Apostle Paul, it's clearly stated, and then in um, the book of Acts, you can see it, that the Jerusalem church, the believers in Jesus in Jerusalem were really in bad straits by the time Paul's writing his letters in the New Testament. And so he's collecting a collection for the believers to take back to uh, Jerusalem. And, and in his case, from Rome to Jerusalem, you know, that would have been like days and days and weeks of journey, okay? It wasn't like he could get on a plane or even get in a car, obviously. So it was a long ways away, and he was going to take it somewhere else. And so literally, this is what uh, overflow is like for us. In fact, it's based on a verse. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of chapters in 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9, that are based on this offering and, that Paul is collecting. And he says this in chapter 9, verse 12. Look at this. This service, that is collecting this offering for these, these uh, people, that you perform is not only to supply the needs of the Lord's people, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanks. So there's where we get our word overflow. So this is above and beyond. This is something we do because this is a giving time of year and because of who we are. I'll explain that in a second. Let me just sort of get this into our minds and into our thoughts real quick, and then we're going to dive into the Scriptures. I'm just going to launch this in your hearts, and we're going to pick it up again next week uh, just to remind you that this is overflow season. And uh, you also have this nice card that explains everything in your program, in your bulletin this morning. And so... What overflow is, is that we take this collection for ministries above and beyond to sort of give them a big gift at the end of the year and make a big impact in people's lives and touch people's lives. And, and the reason this is so exciting is because it's all play. It's, it's leveled at a, a, a level that everybody can participate. I mean, even a person who's sort of in financial straits or a single-parent family and you have to fit, uh, skip a few lattes or one dinner out during the month or something, you can still probably pull this off. It's at that level. Now, every year I, have, I get that question, can we, can we give multiple overflows? And the answer is yes, you can. But the point is, is that every, everyone counts. Even one counts at the same level as somebody who can give more. We always give more because it's so fun, and that's part of the part of deal here is it's, it's just a blast. It really is, to know that you're making that direct impact. But the second thing uh, that I want to talk about is why is it's a good chance to talk about why we give at all. And the reason that we Christians give, whether it be giving on our regular basis, this is above and beyond our regular support of the church, but whether it be on the regular basis or whether it be something like this, the reason we do it is because it's because who we are. You know, Jesus talks more about giving and money than he does about faith, love, peace, all that stuff. Why? He doesn't want your money. He wants your identity. He wants who you are because he knows that's who you are if you're a Christian. I mean, if you're not a Christian, 
giving's a great process too because it does great things in your life. But if you're a Christian, it's just, you just know it's part of your DNA and you just do it. That's why we do it. And that's why we do it every week because it's part of worship. But let me just explain the details of this year's overflow, and you'll, you'll get the point of what I'm saying here. This year's overflow is we're asking everybody to give at least $49 to overflow. You can do it through that envelope. You can do it through the online uh, giving, because I think there should be a button on there by now. I forgot to check. Uh, but you can do that uh, in, in over this uh, holiday season. But uh, where that money's going to go is very specific. We, we've pared it down to three ministries this year because we wanted to really, you know, make an impact on three rather than, you know, uh, multiple, like six or seven, I think we had last year. Here, here's here's where, we, where, where this is going. $20 is going to go for India for Christ. Remember Pastor Paul who was here uh, a few weeks ago? I'm not going to mention any more details about it just in case this uh, online feed is going to somewhere, someone looking around in India. Uh, but the reality is, is that you, know, you saw the persecuted church there. You saw what happened, the brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the world. So this is really exactly like what the Apostle Paul is talking about. It also gives me a chance to say something I've been wanting to say for a couple of weeks, but I was waiting till now. And that is that the first two Sundays of this month were international prayer days for, uh, to pray for the persecuted church internationally. So we're going to pray for them at the end of the service, the, our, our brothers and sisters there and around the world who are being persecuted, but we're not just going to pray. We're going to do something. We would like to send several thousand dollars there that will go a long, long way, and overflow, we can usually do that. Second thing we're going to do is give $20 of that, uh, $49, to uh, First Image, which used to be known as Crisis Pregnancy uh, Resource Center. Now, what I want you to understand is this isn't just about pregnancies. This is about touching the lives of women who are in crisis. And they're all alone in crisis many times, I feel. These are people in our city, many of them believers, who, who need the touch of their fellow believers to help. And, and, and that's what this whole ministry, that's why they changed their name to First Image, because it is saving babies, but it's not just that. It's the whole person that they're trying to reach out to, including these moms. So that makes a big impact, and tell you what, I'm not going to go into detail, but especially in our state, okay? That's a huge thing in our state. So 20 there, 20 uh, to India for Christ, and then finally, $9 to the family room. We've done this before, so most of you know what this is, maybe you don't. It's started by Christians, it's run by Christians. Uh, in fact, it's a relative of somebody in our church and on our leadership team. Um, but this is an amazing ministry because it, it takes people who have been in the foster care system and brings the families back together, the kids back together with the parents and so forth, people who are really trying to keep their family together, but instead of going sitting in a cold uh, DHS room, you know, and just kind of, hi, how you doing, you know, so forth, this gives them a chance to have dinner together, to play some games together, to have some evenings together, and to have some time together in a family room setting before you know, the, the big transition of living together 24-7. Sort of like dating before you get back together with your spouse kind of thing. And, and so this is the perfect opportunity to impact that. So here's the deal. We get to impact believers in Christ on the other side of the globe and people who need to be reached for Jesus. We get to impact people in our very city who has huge needs right now. And we get to impact families uh, just by this. And I'm telling you, I get these emails, and I should do a better job at telling you and saying thank you to you, but I get these emails back saying, man, I can't believe you guys did that, and, and it's really made a difference, and we've been able to do this, and we've been able to do that. So just consider it, pray about it as a family, and you're going to have some time to think about it, but I wanted to launch it today and get it into your hearts, okay? 
And speaking of family, today we're going to launch into a story that's going to involve Jesus' family, both his, um, his physical family, his natural family, but also the family that he began known as the kingdom of God or the body of Christ. He, he refers to us as a family. Okay, this, is, this is his family. He's gonna, this is sort of where it starts, this story that we're going to look at. And, and by the way, if, if you're a little scared of Thanksgiving and you're, you're, you're feeling like, man, my, my, family needs, uh, my family gene pool needs a little chlorine, um, Jesus is with you. What we're going to see is his family was extremely dysfunctional right in the midst of when he was launching his ministry. Okay, So you're going to have some, you know, Jesus is going to get some street cred with you if that's the case for you. And today we're going to go through a whole bunch of verses. So let me just say one thing about, um, about Bible study methods. This is a principle, especially when you're in the Gospels. All the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all do this. They don't necessarily report it in a chronological order. Because you see, in those days, chronology did not mean that you were giving, them, giving people a direct understanding of what actually happened. You see, the chronology and having to do it in a sort of a linear order is sort of a new thing. For them, they don't, they don't add things and they don't change it up. They don't, they don't uh, goof it up. Uh, and it's amazing the synergy between how they all report the story. But... What they did is, is that, that you know, sometimes stories, uh, just like in life, one thing happens one moment and another thing happens the next moment, right? And, and so you can kind of see this in Mark. And so Mark is sort of weaving the story together so we get the feel for what actually happened. And so although we're going to follow these verses along and it's going to seem like at first, you know, they're just sort of some random things, but they're not random things. You're going to see a trail through here as we get about halfway, two-thirds through this, all right? So I just want to just sort of highlight that because it's good to highlight stuff. We're all about helping you understand the Bible more in this church. So just file that away when you're reading the Gospels, when you're reading uh, the Bible, especially Bible narrative passages, that uh, that's kind of how it works. It works like life and how it actually happens. And that's why we're going this way. And we're going to pick up where we left off or where Ben left off last week. We're going to start at verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. And here we go. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about, about all he was doing, many people came to him. And I was going to list off where they came to him from. From Judea, from Jerusalem, from Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan. Now, I just got to stop here and talk about this Idumea thing, because it relates to Christmas, and it relates to uh, right now into the story. The Edomia is a place in the south. It's south of Jerusalem. In, in those days, it was considered what's today called the Negev, which is on the south side of Jerusalem. It's a desert place. And then across the Jordan River, or the other side of the Dead Sea, uh, is also Edomia. But another name for the word Edomia is the word Edom. And another, uh, Edom is another name for the name Esau. Remember Esau? Esau and Jacob, Esau gives up his birthright, and so Jacob becomes a great nation. In fact, God calls him Israel. He becomes the father of Israel, uh, and, and uh, because uh, the firstborn, Esau, gave up his birthright, he's, he's off and he becomes Edom, okay? Why is that significant? Well, it's significant of the Christmas story, file this away, because Herod the Great was an Edomite. He was not a Jew. Now you're beginning to understand why Herod the Great, you know, baby killer Herod the Great, was such a wacko sometimes, but he was a genius wacko. He was, in fact, today, even today in Israel, when you go there, if you go there, you can hear the Israelis talk about Herod the Great and what a great king he was. 
because he built him a temple and so forth, but he never felt accepted either by the Jews or the Romans. He felt like he was being watched all the time, and that's part of what made him so crazy. All right? But by this time, this is a significant thing, too, because Jerusalem is about, he lists Jerusalem here, it's about 125 miles away. Edomia is about 150 miles away. And the, the king now is Herod, another Herod, Herod Antipas, the, follower, the, the, the one who came a successor of uh, uh, Herod the Great. And, and what's, what this is saying is, what Mark's saying is, is right underneath Herod's nose, People were coming to see who Jesus was. Now understand, this is like coming from Tacoma to Portland because somehow, I know this is hard to believe, but they believe that what's going on in Portland, Portlandia, is this spiritual center. Like there's just this amazing spiritual person they are doing miracles and, and, and God's doing an amazing thing in Portland so they're coming from, I know, it's hard to believe. But that's exactly what it was happening here. The, the, the Galilee, northern Galilee was considered Bumpkinville. So what Mark is saying is, is they were coming from all over. That's how powerful and how fast the story of Jesus was spread. And, and people were not driving cars again. They were not, you know, flying, obviously. They were walking and, and riding on animals. And they were coming that far away to see who he, what was about. So that's significant. And around Tyre and Sidon, which is out on the seacoast, because of the crowds, uh, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed so many that those who, uh, with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, here we go again, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he gave them strict orders to tell, uh, not to tell others about him. So he's telling these demons anyway. The people, he, they're, they're running around telling everybody, obviously, because they're coming from you know, 150 miles away. Now, for now, what we need to understand is that the word was out. The word was out and that people knew about Jesus, even though he told people not to tell, it just leaked out. You, just, you can't keep news like this in, right? And, and we'll, we'll see this again, so we'll talk about why. But basically, Jesus was saying, this is not my time yet. It's not that time for uh, the uh, religious leaders to be allowed to you know, crucify me and take me and so forth and so on. That It's not time. I'm still doing ministry here that needs to be done, and that's why he was trying to keep it quiet. Uh, there's a little more to it than that, but we'll pick that up another time. Look at verse 13, because Jesus does something in the midst of all this craziness, in the midst of all the busyness, it's like we got busyness, he stops, and he goes to a quiet place, and he does something. Look at this. Jesus went up on a mountainside, probably a hill just on the north side of the uh, Sea of Galilee, and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12. This is the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. And that they might, watch this, be with him, and that he might send them out. The word sent out is the word apostelos, or apostle to preach, sent them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are, here are the twelve he appointed, Simon, who was, uh, he, he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boragines, uh, which means sons of thunder, that's a cool name, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, cue the music, bum, 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 the one who betrayed him. It's kind of interesting to put that in the list. I mean, this is years later now, remember, right? I mean, think about this. Mark is writing from Rome. 
And he's been asked by the, the church leaders in Rome, this is, you know, in the 60s, maybe early 60s, maybe late 50s AD, so, you know, 30 to, to um, 35 years after the events, right? And so he's, he's been asked to write this. Why? Because they're under extreme persecution. They're trying to tell people how, you know, how is it possible to grow as a Jesus follower? Is it possible to be formed by God to make it through this earth when you're under such intense persecution and struggle and so forth? Is it possible when you, you're a person like Peter who has a hard time, you know, being consistent you know, like some of these other disciples, Peter was just, you know, he gets a lot of flack because he's always opening his mouth. I totally understand him. He's my patron saint. If it's in here, it's coming out here. I get that. But, you know, he, 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 all of these guys had, had, you know, struggles just like you and I have struggles in terms of, is it possible to be formed and to become uh, that kind of person? And Mark is saying, yes, 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 you can become Jesus' person. That is really, truly possible. And, and what he's describing here, because he's saying, look, Jesus was able to do his ministry and do his work in the midst of a circumstances where he knew the person that was going to lead him to his death and betray him. And by the way, John tells us that Judas was the treasurer and would pilfer money along the way out of the treasury. Ah, nasty. And yet Jesus must have known all this, and he allowed him to come along for three years. And in the midst of all of that, He's still able to have this amazing transformative ministry. He's, amazed, he's able to have this amazing transforming. And these guys were transformed. And they were changed. And, they, and he, he taught them and he formed them. And, and by the power and the Spirit of God, they became kingdom people. And they, so it's possible. No matter what your culture, no matter who's around you. But you do want to know that you're, you're sort of in a place that is best suited for that, that you can possibly be in, Right? See, the, the process that we're talking about is spiritual formation. It's spiritual formation. It's, another, it's sort of a more of a, a newer, hip phrase of uh, discipleship. What spiritual formation is, and, and can I just, um, this is church, so can I just confess something to you? I haven't really ever liked this term for a long, long time. I think right now in our cultural moment, it's the perfect phrase, but I got to tell you why I haven't liked it, Okay. Because when we say the word spiritual, somebody says they're spiritual, oftentimes what we think is a person who's totally into themselves, right? Sort of the navel gazer kind of person. None of you, just kind of, you know, in. And the more quiet and the more in they are, the more spiritual they must be. Well, if that's the case, then Jesus wasn't very spiritual. He hung out with sinners and tax collectors for crying out loud. He did very earthy work. And yes, he got away by himself to pray and to nominate his apostles and to do all that. Yes, all of that too. The other reason why I've, I've struggled with it is because if you take the word spiritual and say, I'm a spiritual person, I say, well, what about your physical? What about your soul, which your soul really consumes? We think it's just kind of the emotions and the state of mind, but it's not. It consumes your body, soul, and spirit, but let's just leave it at that for now. It's as if today we, we try to divide everything. We're well, going to see this a little later. We try to split up everything. And you can't split your spirit from your body. Your body is doing spiritual things. You cannot split up what the Creator has made as a whole, as a complete piece in the image of God, which is why you can't just give God your spirit and say, let me have my you know, physical life and all this other stuff, emotional life, let me do my own thing. Mm -mm. You're either y'all or you're not. I mean, that's... that's that's why I've had trouble, you know, kind of spiritual formation. 
But the reality is, is that there, in our world today, understanding, as long as you understand spiritual as the whole person of who you are, formation, spiritual formation, that's exactly what we need. Because we need, it, it's sort of core formation. At our core, we need to be formed and changed to be able to move forward and to have healthy and vibrant, not just Christian lives, but lives, period, right? Everybody, I will make this statement. This is rash, this is radical, but it's true. Everybody on the planet, everybody in America is looking for spiritual formation. Everybody. They may say they don't believe in spiritual world. They may say they don't believe in God. They say they're secularists. You know what secularism is? It's spiritual formation without God, or it's an attempt at it. We'll talk about that later. And that, that's exactly what, this, what, 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 what Jesus is doing here. He's inviting them to come along and, and, and spend time with him. Remember last week Ben said, um, uh, he, he quoted uh, Jeremiah 31 where God says, I'll write my word, I'll write my truth on your hearts. I'll write my will on your hearts. What does that mean? That means I'm going to form you in such a way that you don't have to constantly wonder what, I'm, what my will is. And by the way, if you are a Jesus follower, you may not know all of God's up to. I mean, I got some of you know what I'm talking about. I, I heard about a situation here one of my friends is going through. That I, I, I have no idea what God's up to in this. This is just really, it was a horrendous situation. But the reality is, is what we know as Christians at our core is that God has not left the building. He has not left the planet. He is up to something. We, we just, it's just beyond us to understand. We don't have the furniture to comprehend what he's doing. No question about that. But, but the reality is, is that if you are following him on a daily basis, you can be assured of that. You don't have to say, God, I want to do your will. Show me your will. And it's not like God's up in heaven going, I got it in my trench coat, but you can't have it. Not like that kind of thing. It's, a, it's, it's God saying, you, if you're living with me on a daily basis, you're in the center of my will. So don't quit worrying about it. And, and, and so he's writing it on, on, on the hearts. And, and Ben also talked about the new wineskins. There needs to, be, it needs to be a new uh, perspective. There needs to be a new way to carry around what it means to be a, a Jesus person, to be a kingdom person that Jesus has come. If you're going to be a part of the kingdom, if you're going to be a citizen, you have to have sort of a new atmosphere to put this truth and this teaching in. In other words, it, it kind of looks like this. Here, think of this as, a, as a, a definition of what spiritual formation does. It's having Jesus change your whole self from the heart to the head so that you can be who you were always meant to be but never thought you could be. That's what it is. That's why it's so exciting to see Jesus just kind of unpack this. And, and look what he did. Look, look, look where he, what he's, why he's calling these people out. To, to, to be with him. Look, that's, that's exactly why. It's in verse 14. He says he calls them. He chooses them to be with him. That's the mark in the New Testament of someone who is a Jesus follower and people notice, oh yeah, they've been with Jesus. So that makes your, your devotional time on a daily basis really important. It makes your, your time with your fellow believers and your small group or your large, the large worship, whatever it is, makes it really important because you're spending time with Jesus through them, because Jesus is where two or three are gathered, I'm there, and you're spending time with him when you're, you're doing your devotion and when you're praying, it makes prayer extremely important in terms of your relationship with him, right? Just be with him. He's just saying, be with me. But that's not all he's saying to do. He's saying, and to send them out. To send them out, 
and you're there with him. You send them out, and they're with him. You see, spiritual formation is being with Jesus and then being sent out as a new person and then being with Jesus. And sent, it's, it's not a linear thing. It's not, a, okay, I'll wait till I get uh, independently wealthy, then I'll serve the Lord. It's not a, I'll wait till I'm completely, totally together, then I'll go. It's, you know, the thing is, is you and I half the time don't know what we don't know and don't know what we need to know until we get out there and find out. That's why Jesus sends them out. Before they're fully formed, so to speak. We're not really, in that sense, if you want to use the word properly, fully formed until we get to eternity anyway. But, but there's this, that's the process of being formed by Jesus, this be with him, sent out, be with him, sent out. And what we see next is some pitfalls along the way. And what needs to be avoided, what we need to be aware of, and what we need to listen to the Holy Spirit for to say, okay, watch out for this, right? Here we go. And it starts off by talking about his family. Verse 20, then Jesus entered the house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. So they're probably over in Nazareth. They're coming over to Capernaum, which is a day's walk in itself. Uh, came to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Now, and understand this. By the time Mark's writing this, all of Jesus' families are either leaders in the church or they're venerated by the church. They're honored by the church. Like Mary, she's honored by the church, right? James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem by this time, his brother James. And, and <laughs> so the thing is, is, there's no reason for Mark to put this in here unless it actually happened. That Jesus' family came after him like this. Verse 22, And the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebul, which is Beelzebub, it was also the term they used, depending on the ending they wanted to, how they connected it with the rest of the sentence. But Beelzebul, we're not sure exactly where that title came from, that name, but probably it came from the Canaanite god Baal, or Baal, you may have heard. Beelzebub, but by the time Mark's writing this, we are sure of this. By the time Jesus is teaching this, we are sure of this. It meant Satan. So these guys, these religious leaders, are calling Jesus Satan. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. They, even, they, don't, they, they, they double down, they, explain, they say exactly what they mean. Verse 23, so Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself... That kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Now we're starting to get an idea of why the Apostle Paul and James and all the other writers of the New Testament, Jesus is alluding to this, he's kind of launching this, that people who are about disunity in the church or disunity in the family of God or who are factional in their nature, that's... That's not just a cranky person. That's a sinful person. Paul puts those sins right up there with murder. Stuff like that. So I'm just saying. That's this division, this divisiveness. Jesus really is, is not into that. Verse 26. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all the, their sins and every slander 
that they uttered, which that's the center of the gospel. Thank God for that. You've forgiven all sins. But, there we go, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now let me just, first of all, say, thank God that in the history of Eastridge, we have been, um, we have been so blessed. We are on the other side of the spectrum from, from divisiveness. God has blessed us wonderful people, and that's the true case now. So that's not, we're going through this because this is where we are in Mark. But what I want you to notice is that Jesus first clarifies the center of the gospel. Every sin can be forgiven, and every slander can be forgiven. But then there's a second thing in here that I need to deal with, because I'm sure that somebody, well, probably a lot of people, who know their Bible at all, are wondering about this, because this is the first time we hear about this thing called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. What is that? Right? Well, Jesus is clarifying this. Now, notice, these, it makes it very clear, these, deci- these uh, religious leaders, rather, are saying specifically, not only is he Beelzebub, but he is the prince of demons. That's how he casts out demons. You know, have you ever heard of a a book, or it's actually a giant poem called Paradise Lost. It's a couple hundred years old by John Milton. In there, he does an amazing job of describing the fall of Adam and Eve and, and, and the, the nature of Satan. And there's a character in there, Satan. Satan um, in, in there is, is terrified of goodness. In, 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 the, in, in the Paradise Lost, Satan says, let evil be good and good evil. He flips it. That's Satan's process is to flip it. It's it's why um, Isaiah 5, verse 20, it says, Woe to the person who calls evil good and and good evil. That's exactly what these people are doing. And Jesus is saying, you're calling the Son of God, you are calling the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, you're calling that sin. You're calling that evil. That means you have, something's happened inside of you you have no way of understanding what's really real, and you would dare to let those, those words cross your lips. In fact, let's just sort of unpack this then, what, what the unforgivable sin is uh, from this context. The first thing is, is that this is a sin against the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit is God and can be sinned against. That's clear. So this is, this is sort of a Trinitarian thing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present. Jesus is present in, in this physical way, so this is more in his, in his face. So they're directly challenging what they've seen. I mean, the evidence is that much stronger, so just understand that. The revelation of this story is this, that these people don't have the furniture upstairs or in their heart anymore to repent. They don't have the ability to repent anymore because they are so broken and so taken over by the darkness that they don't have that ability. So that's why it's unforgivable, right? So here's, the, here's, the, here's a little bit in terms of what you wonder about. Can the unpardonable sin be committed today and so forth and so on? Well, here's what you need to know. If you feel sorry or are struggling with it, you haven't. <laughs> you haven't committed it. I mean, because, and here's the other thing. We don't not only have the furniture to, these guys don't only have the furniture to, to get out of this situation and to, because they're following the way of darkness, the evil one, and they don't even know it which that should be frightening to some people. And when we do see a lot of that kind of, seemingly that kind of thing going on, but we don't have the furniture, we don't have the ability, God never gave us the ability to judge whether someone else has crossed this line or whether even our own selves have crossed this line, okay? 
So just be careful about your feelings about that. The reason I say this is, and maybe this has never crossed your mind, but I've had many people over the years as I've been a pastor who have come to me and said, Pastor, I'm sorry, I gotta, I, I'm, I'm leaving the church. Said, well, why is that? Well, because I, I committed the unpardonable sin. I just, uh, I just don't feel it anymore. It's just not there. I, I'm, I'm sure I've committed the unpardonable sin. And I said, well, do you regret that at all? And I say, yeah, I, I really do. I said, well, then you haven't. And you're sounding more to me like somebody who just wants to leave church. I, I, that's, not, that's just not it. So, you know, we, we just need to be real careful how, how we use this thing. But we need to be serious about it, too. That it is possible to cross that line so there, the conscience has been so shattered and so uh, calloused over and so burnt up, to use bazillion metaphors, that it's possible not to feel one smidgen of need to repent. And that, and not only that, you're, you're striking out against goodness and you think, that that's the, that's the terror of this, you think all along that you're actually doing something good. That's what these Pharisees or these religious teachers of the law were doing. But that's the reality. I just don't want anybody thinking, oh, I've committed it or whatever, and when, you, when you have it. If you, if you love goodness, if you love peace, if you love uh, um, um, uh, love, and if you, you want the fruit, you know, you wish that was true about your life, then guess what? You've got Jesus values. You have desire for Jesus values, so... You couldn't have committed this, okay? Savvy? We got that? All right, here we listen. But we do have to say something else about this. Notice it's the religious people who are in greater danger of committing this violence against the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not the tax collectors and sinners. It's the religious people who have been raised in it, who have been known about it. And so you can actually begin to see that the avenue toward what Satan wants to do in our lives, uh, wickedness is one way, yes, but a quicker and more uh, subtle and destructive and darker way is pride and self-righteousness. That's what these guys had. That's, that's, what brought, that's the trail that they followed. That's where they went, right? And, and that's the scary part, which sort of puts our world and our culture in perspective. Because we talk about, I talked about some before the service to this about somebody. You know, secularism... The, the idea that, you know, our society needs to be based on a philosophy that has God nowhere near, that God has been completely expunged from. Secularism is actually another form of religion. Because what do people want? People still want love, charity, graciousness, wars to stop, things like that. What are those? Those are Jesus values. They're kingdom values. Which goes to show you, you can't, you, you know, you can take the idea out of the human being, but you can't take the core out of the human being, because God created us in his image to want those things, those values. You can't take those values out. But it's, but it's not possible, and what we're starting to see today is secularism. The religion of secularism is starting, as Jesus says, the house divided. The strong man is being tied up. The house divided can't stand. Secularism is starting to bleed around the edges, because they're there's this, you know, one, one faction's against another faction, and one group with a, a moral revolution is fighting another group in the moral revolution. And that's not just political. It's actual people, you know, globally who are saying, no, no, that's not right, and so forth. And the, the Western world's fighting the, 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 the Southern Hemisphere and all that kind of stuff in terms of it's, it's starting to split and fall apart. And I'm not, I'm not saying we should be yippy-skippy, and I'm not saying that it's going to be easy for Christians in the future. I don't know. I'm just saying 
that this is bigger and, and, and grander, and this is describing exactly what's happening in our world. So what can we do? We will, will want to be spiritually formed. We want to be as kingdom people as we possibly can be kingdom people. We'll want to be a part of Jesus' family as much as we can be a part of a Jesus' family. And, and the values and the things that are in that just kind of, oh, yeah, there's something in us that resonates there and says, that's what I really want. That's where Jesus is going with this. And you can kind of summarize it down in terms of how do we live in this cultural moment with the kind of spiritual formation that Jesus the King brings to us, Jesus the one who is the lover of our souls. Here's, here's what it is. It's more, in our time I believe, it's more about accepting, adopting, and diving into this new culture of Jesus, of his kingdom, than it is about fighting back against the old one, the one of the enemy. Because He's going down. He just doesn't know it yet. He's been going down since the cross. And yeah, every once in a while it comes roaring back in terms of the culture and stuff like that. But even now we're seeing it start to, post-Christian culture starting to fray around the edges. And who's going to be there to pick up the pieces when all is lost? I think Jesus says it's something about a remnant, something about a family of his known as the church. We need to be people who are not self-righteous, who are not proud about that, but are simply moving and growing and, and getting better and closer and closer to him and to one another and going out in the world and sharing that love. See, I'm leading them. This sort of really dawned on me this week that, that this is what we need to be about right now. When I started leading a, a study through, or not a study, I just reading through a book with the extended staff. It's called um, Hearers and Doers by uh, Kevin Van Hooser. And um, he's a theology professor back east. Uh, really kind of fun to read, though. And he, um, I'm looking forward to hearing what our, you know, these friends of mine that we're reading this with had to say, because I always learn when I'm in a reading group with other people, they see things I don't see, which is a good idea, by the way, if you, have, if you can find a group to, to read a book through, uh, through a book with and kind of uh, interact about it. But he says something very interesting. This is one of his premises of this book. He says, I became acutely aware of the formative nature, so the, like, just like spiritual formation, this formative nature of culture. Every culture is formative. On a person's way of thinking, experiencing, and doing things long before I came across post-modernity, that philosophy that we have today in the culture, Postmodernity's focus on the kinds of situatedness, situatedness being situational ethics, situational morals, whatever my situation is, that's what's true and that's what my morals should be. You've got your situation and you make yours up and so forth. Um, you know, whatever the situation dictates. Not, there's not a God that dictates what those things are, what's true. The, the situation does. That allegedly affect our reasoning about reality. I do not believe that culture is uniformly evil, neither do I, but I do think that it is a powerful means of spiritual formation. Culture too often flies under the radar of disciple making. Isn't that interesting? Culture's making disciples all the time. What, what, what he's saying here is, you know, what Jesus is calling and what Jesus came to do is to create a culture known as the kingdom of God where people could invest themselves and in could live in that and be a part of that and that in itself would shape them. That's why church is such a big deal. That's why the body of Christ is such a big deal because it's the culture that forms us. You, you, you become like the people you hang out with. 
there's a lot more to it than that. But that's, you know, like your mother told you. I'm worried about who you're hanging out with, that kind of thing. And it's, that's, that's the reality of what's going on here and what's going on out there. Isn't that interesting? Because there are all kinds of secularist disciples going on today. But that, is, do we really believe that that's more powerful than what Jesus is doing through the culture of the kingdom of God, known as the kingdom of God? His family, known as his family? No. That, 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 that's the, uh, an amazing uh, revelation when you think about it. And so the question is really, you know, wouldn't you want to choose which culture you associate yourself with and put yourself with, not just be kind of driven along by the, by the, by the river of whatever the culture is at the moment? Well, I sure would. And that's why I think Jesus is comparing this and why he's being so strong in these religious leaders because he's seeing something that he's saying, don't even dip your toe in that because I don't want you getting sucked in. In fact, obviously not everybody is all that excited. This whole idea about being a uniter versus a divider, an insider versus an outsider, that kind of thing, that shows up in the last part of chapter 3. Look at verse 31. I'm going to start at verse 30, even though I skipped it last time. He said to this because, he said this about the eternal sin, because they were saying he had an impure spirit. So we could have clarified a lot right there. 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. So they'd got, come from probably Nazareth, like I said. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and he told them, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And then he says this thing that just seems like, Jesus, don't... That's your mom. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my mother. Now, by the way, just because he, he you notice he, he mentions brother, sister, um, and mothers. I think I skipped sister. Sorry, sisters. Um, but he doesn't mention father. Probably because Joseph wasn't there and probably because Joseph had died by this time. But that's just a little factoid for your, your Bible study. But it's his family here now. And we're beginning to, to, to understand that, you know, family is another one of those cultures that forms us. Right? And that's why we, we say at Eastridge, if you don't have family nearby, if you don't have family or your family's kind of gone off somewhere else, we'll be your family. And, and we want to be everybody's family, even people that have a family, okay? And, and because this is where that is formed, and, and fam, we're family of families. And, and Jesus is talking about this family. Why? Because where do you get your values? And, and they're extremely hard to shift, certainly on our own, by ourselves. They're hard to change our values once they've been inculcated in us up to about the age of seven or beyond, right? They just are. So it's going to take some supernatural work. And, and the reality is, is one of the first things that has to happen for many of us is we need our values interrupted. We need value interruption because something's got to stop those other values that we've been living by, the, the other cultural values, But if we're going to get the new ones. And, and uh, we, we need to shift um, our values. And we need to have our values stopped or interrupted before that happens. And, you know, I've been reading another book that's kind of blowing up my head. I can't recommend it yet because I'm only two chapters in. But usually when it's blowing on my face uh, right in the first two chapters, it's a good book. But I'll let you know later. It's by Mark Sayers. It's called The Reappearing Church. And here's the premise of that book. Listen to this. This was pretty amazing to me. 
Like so many of us, I was buzzing around trying to do kingdom business while worrying about the future of the church and the health of our culture, that is, culture at large. We need to be interrupted, to have our patterns halted, because doing the same things only delivers the same results. That's a definition of worry right there, by the way. We will not experience renewal by following the same patterns of life and ministry that are not delivering renewal. We don't need another book on the challenges of the church faces in the West. We don't need another option. We need renewal. We're going to see renewal of people, renewal of Jesus' family, renewal of uh, uh, the heart. We're going to see that over and over again in the book of Mark, even though the word is not translated that way, even though the word is not used in the book of Mark. That's what Jesus came to do, to renew. And one of the first things he has to do is value interruptions, but then he has to give us some new formational patterns. So, you know, sometimes as people say, um, well, I, you know, I don't know how to read the Bible. I don't know how to do devotional time. I don't know how it works. Should I just do it? And I always say, yes, you should, because you need some new patterns. You need to interrupt the old patterns of, you know, getting in the car, not thinking about God, and going to work, not thinking about God, you know, and then worrying about stuff. You need to interrupt those patterns with some time to go, okay, God, what do you want to say? So, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's why that's so important. That's why that's so vital. And, and I think that, that, that's what, what Jesus is saying is, look, we are family here. It, it, we, we, even beyond other, and, and being into this family is going to, uh, transform our other family, right? That's why he's saying it. It'll change everything. Now, I'm, I'm going to just sort of, there's one more thing in here. I'm going to sort of drop the bomb and then walk away. Okay, I'll run away. Uh, because Jesus does something here that just is almost mind-boggling, but I'm going to try to put some pieces together but then leave it and we'll pick it up next week, okay? Here it is. When Jesus, this, this last discussion about uh, Jesus' family, he says they're on the outside two times, verse 31 and 32, outside, outside. And then he talks about the insiders, insiders. Who's on the outside? It's his family. Yay. Dysfunctional family. We, we have people like that in our, in our world today who are so dysfunctional from the values of the culture that when they become Christians, they don't swap the values out. And it's just, you know, it's sort of like, well, I love, I love uh, the church. I'm so glad my church is doing this thing and, and painting that elderly person's house and so forth. I'll be there, I'll be there, I'll be there. Hey, where were you? you didn't, oh, I just, I had a bad day. I needed some me time, right? Dysfunction. Or, you know, I don't want to be a consumerist, and I don't want to teach my kids to be consumers. I don't want to teach my family. So we are not going to be consumers. We're not going to be, we're going to be Jesus followers. Great, 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 great. Uh, but I got to tell you, we're going to another church. Why? Because uh, the youth group down the street is cooler, so we're going to go there and consume. That. Well, not consume, but yeah, consume. Or, or you know, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, uh, you know, support the, the ministries that are going on and the, 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 the things that are in, in this, in this um, you know, reaching out across the city and across the globe, but as well support the ministry of my church and so forth and so on. But you know what? I, I just, in such a financial strain, I can't do it right now. It's, it's the dysfunctional thing. Now, look, I'll, I'll stop there. We could go on and on about the, the, this uh, dis, values dysfunction, but uh, I'm going to stop there so that I don't offend everybody in the room. And, but but we'll just let it blow up in all our faces at the, for now. But here's the thing about insiders and outsiders. Jesus is saying, you can all be, in, you know, come on in. You can be insiders. But he's saying something that seems so harsh, 
that they're on the outside. You know, you are my brothers and sisters. Whoa, wait, whoa. And he's not saying they can't come in. But he's saying, look, uh, this is open to everyone. But you got to make sure that you're choosing to be in on the kingdom of God. You're choosing in to be on Jesus' family. Not just some out there trying to live the cultures of this, the values of this world, but not actually being a part of it. So spiritual formation is about values interruption. It's about having new patterns to learn what that means and how to live those out. It's, and, and the way that happens is just being with Jesus and then being sent out. And the cycle happens. This is the amazing cycle. When you make that cycle, we have this pathway we call, uh, you know, this is sort of uh, under the skin of your church right now. In the leadership, we have this pathway called the meet no follow pathway. We judge whether or not we should do programs based on this. We really do. You meet Jesus, you follow, you get to know Jesus, you follow him. That means you're sent out. And then it cycles back. You, you meet him in a new way because you need to understand some new things because you experience some things out there and it's cycling back. And here's an interesting thing. When you meet, know, and then you follow and you share your faith out there and someone is touched and their life is changed and God uses you as a part of what he does to bring them to himself. And it's so exciting. It is exciting. There's nothing better than that. But you know what happens to you? You learn something new too. You're changed too. Not that just them changed, and it just keeps going, and it's like a giant flywheel. That's what spiritual formation is in the family of Jesus. Now, I'm going to call the band out here, and I got one commercial and a final challenge in three sentences or less. The commercial is this January 26th, we're going to start a new class called. Uh, it's, well, we don't have a title for it yet, but it's on, it, the, t- the subject is spiritual formation. How do we live out? It's another way of saying discipleship. How do we live it out on a daily basis? How do we live out as disciples? How does that work? How does that happen? Thinking about doing it on Sunday mornings, um, if you'll go to the other service at the same time, just saying. But we're, 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 we're thinking about that, but keep that in mind, kind of put that in your head, but here's the challenge. If you haven't yet I would challenge you, hook, line, and sinker, body, soul, and spirit, however you describe yourself, to take all of yourself and put yourself in and push, give yourself all over to Jesus, whether you know what that means or not. This isn't, you know, a consumer checklist. This isn't the grocery list. This is all of me in with him because that is the place that he expresses his love, and that's the place I want for you, I want it for me, that we be those kind of people who are being transformed because we are truly a part of Jesus' family. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to save us from our sins, from every sin, he said, and every um, slander that comes out of our mouth. You can forgive us. We thank you for that, but that's not all you did. You came to change us and to form us and to give us new values, values that are in line with what our hearts have really wanted all along. I pray that everybody in this room would see the possibility and the hope that is in this story that's kind of crazy, and if you read it one way, it could be kind of dark, but it's really an opening of the light. And may that be true for every single one of us today as we go out of here. Draw us together and draw us close to you and send us out like you did your apostles and let us see the reality of you and the transformative power of your Holy Spirit in our lives and in the people around us as we go about our week wherever we are. We thank you that that's what you want to do, Lord Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray.
Amen.